In The Legend of the White Snake, an immortal serpent disguises herself as a woman and falls in love with a mortal man. When she drunkenly reveals her true form, he's so startled that he drops dead right there and then. This is the first of several times that she has to save him. And they stay married and they stay in love. She's prepared to overlook things like his strange monkey limbs and his lack of scales and his inability to shed his skin and keep living. Welcome to Bedtime Stories for the End of the World, where we ask some of the UK's brightest and boldest poets to choose a myth or a folk tale or a fairy story that they want to preserve for future generations, saving it from rising waters, from nuclear disaster or from the everyday tragedy of forgetfulness. What we want to know is what stories they want to leave behind for whatever civilizations or smoking remains come next. They've rewritten their stories, they've shaken them until something goes crack, and it's my pleasure to bring you the results. I'm your host, Eleanor Penny, trying to spin a roomful of straw into gold. And joining me this week to bargain away their firstborn children are Rian Edwards, Simran Uppel, and Jay Bernard. First up, we have Jay Bernard, who is a writer, a film programmer, and the author of three critically acclaimed poetry pamphlets, and recently the recipient of the Ted Hughes Prize for Poetry. Hello. Hey, how you doing? Great. It's so good to have you here. Yeah, my, my, my pleasure, actually. It's interesting, uh, yeah, lovely little project we've got going on here. <laughs> so what have you chosen for us? Well, I I wrote a pamphlet called The Red and Yellow Nothing, which was based on the story of Sir Morian. And this is a kind of Arthurian legend um, from the Middle Dutch canon, essentially. Um, we don't really have it because we have the French sort of tradition here. Um, and I came across it a few years ago. And I wrote an entire pamphlet. But the pamphlet was really prequel to the story. And it was really me taking this thing and being like, what do I want to do with this? For this project, I decided to take an actual section from the story and kind of rewrite that, retell that. So to give you a little bit of background, um, so Morian is a, a knight, but a young knight. And probably he's a teenager, really. Um, and he's described as being black from head to toe, as in literally black, as in everything is black. <laughs> and I found that absolutely fascinating, as you can imagine. And he rides to Camelot from the Moorish lands, a very specific geography there, to Camelot to find his father, Sir Aglaval. And by implication, Aglaval is white, European, but they don't talk about race in these terms, in terms that we understand. So um, that's kind of an interesting sort of element of the story. So Morian rides into Camelot and meets Sir Gawain and Sir Lancelot, and they agree to help him find Sir Aglaval. And basically, hilarity ensues. But one of the real key points of the story is when it splits off into three. So they come to a kind of crossroads with a hermitage at it. And the hermit says, oh, I don't think any, you should you should go down that road. None of you should, you should all turn back. And they're like, well, we're looking for, you know, Morian's father, so we're going to have to, like, go down here. And Morian takes the sea road. Um, and Gawain and Lancelot take much more unfortunate roads, but we won't go into that. He takes the sea road, and that leads to the coast. And as he's riding along, he sees footsteps, like footprints, horse prints, hoof prints in the sort of marshes and in the sand and he's like that must have been my father and uh when he gets to the shore um that's kind of yeah that's kind of where this story begins um or kind of what this story is about this poem is called the sea road it's also written um in seven different voices <laughs> the dying night do you see what they do to strangers now this land has been overrun. It is not a place I recommend to anyone. I was a strong knight, a good knight once. I had been captured, accused, charged. I was asking for forgiveness and remembering the soft sun where I was born. I felt the blood on my lips and my eyes going dark. They broke me on the wheel two days before and left my body in a pile to watch others have their heads and necks broken, to see the teeth and eyes fly out of their heads as the clubs came down. As you can see, I have no hands to greet you with. I have no eyes to see you with. My thoughts are like the morning sun through the leaves, blue and weak. I have nothing but impressions now. 
Creation is sound and smell and pain, but since Eve, it was ever thus. You asked me whether I saw that night, a black night. I can't say for certain his colour, but I heard him come. The hooves of his horse like thunder, the swing of his sword like the wind. I heard the shouts, I heard the cracking of axes on his shield. I heard first the cry, then the guttering howl of the men who had broken me on the wheel. The sick sound of their industry gave way to silence. I saw nothing. Only heard the knight speak to his friend Gawain the medic, who was injured but not broken. And then the knight asked that he used his healing powers to save me and all the others around me. I can't say whether he was black, but he was brave, and is burned into my memory. I thank God for such a miracle before my day has come. I will not be remembered, but he will. At the end of my life, at the end of the world, I promise you that. The Red Knights We are huge men and we are from this land, so believe us when we say it was terrifying. Believe us when we say that we were heading to the sea road and it was a broad blue day as though the sea itself were above us and the sun as big as a fist floating through it. And we had just completed our errand and we were heading back to hall. Believe us when we say that we had to stop suddenly because we saw a figure coming towards us but surely we had never seen anything like it, like the reaper himself on horseback. Believe us we had never seen so bright a day and so dark a thing that our horses stopped who frozen mid-air and our hearts stopped until we heard the shadow cry out and hearing it cry believe us we feared for our lives and drew our swords and shouted stay back stay back and the figure stopped in the distance all black as though there was no sun in the sky and as he lifted his hand we thought he'd drawn his sword and so we charged towards him and believe us when we say that we feared for our lives we have seen combat of the deadliest kind. We have cut knights from navel to chops, swung the blade full speed through half a man's head so you can inspect the workings of his skull, intricate as an astrolabe. Believe us when we say that hearing this shadow's voice was nothing compared to that, that for the first time we truly knew what it meant to glimpse death, and so we believed our lives were at an end if seeing such a thing were not death already. His speed was supernatural, for as we charged he turned and outran us and somehow disappeared across the land. What would we have done if we'd caught him? I can't say. Fear would have done the imaginative work and ended everything for him. Ended him entirely. And that's why your question puzzles us. Did we see a black knight? We are knights. Knights are men. We cannot say that what we saw was a man. Yet you ask after him as if you knew him. Yet you ask us so calmly. The Boatman I have lived here all my life, worked on these boats. I have been here since birth, since sunup, and will remain until sundown. A black knight, a black horse, yes, I saw him come. As soon as he rode up to the shore, we boatmen pulled away. And from the sea, we watched as he rode up and down the coast, looking in vain. As soon as he reached a boat, no sooner did it pull away. And when he retraced his steps to see if a boat had returned, out it went again. We have no obligation to take the devil over the water. He said he was looking to see if his father had come this way. Suddenly a boatman rode to the shore and put out his hand and said the black knight could cross. We all waited and rowed towards that boat and asked him what he was doing, but he said nothing. He kept rowing. Midway across the water, we all jumped aboard to stop him. He held up his oar like a weapon. A fight ensued and he fell over the side and did not resurface. We did not touch the black knight because he was so fearsome. He leapt off the boat himself and swam until he disappeared from view. He swam towards the horizon, and we were so frightened that we neither went out to sea nor back to shore until a brewing storm forced us. But that was long after sunset. We looked, but we never found the body of our boatman. We burned his vessel, and we trembled as we stepped back onto the land. It did not feel like our country anymore. We have never known trouble like this. So we made a law that we would never transport his kind again. His father... Yes, we know his father well. We have heard the stories. The father is welcome any time, but not the son. The robber. 
You, yes, I heard what you just asked. I know what you're talking about. Yes, I am tied up and they're taking me to the gallows where I will meet my maker. You think because I'm bad I must be stupid, but I know who you are and I know why you're asking. Yes, I saw a knight come this way. I travelled with him for a time. He was headed toward the sea and looking for his father. I thought it strange that one such as him would be looking for a knight of the round table. Those guys are legendary. So I figured he must be looking for something else and using that only as a cover. There was something strange about him, determined and single-minded and you say he was all black but he didn't look all black to me Sir Morian, yeah? I asked him his name and that's what he said and I rode alongside him for a while black from head to toe please I don't know why you would say that you say I'm a thief that I wrongfully rob people take what isn't mine but what about the lords of this land? you don't have the nerve to call them what they really are and believe me there is a terror coming the like of which we have never seen this is why I am glad to die I rode so close to this night I could smell the perfume of another land. He told me about his mother, how beautiful she was, how he was coming to find his father so that the two might marry. Anyway, I led him to a clearing where I intended to kill him, and that's what I did. You won't find him wandering about again. I stole his sword, his armour, his horse and sold it. He wasn't even the last of my victims. And just before I killed him I stared into his eyes, and very slowly I pushed the knife in until... And the light went out from them. His pupils were the only black thing about him. Ah, but I see from your face that I'm a liar, a thief, a killer. You can see for yourself. Do you remember where you captured me? About a day's walk from there is where you'll find him. The child. There are many bodies in the woods. That is where I am buried. Below me, a headless woman. Above me, a priest. Like the light I saw when I was born, the ground opened up and I felt the warm moon. They were whispering. They leaned in close to me, prodded my skull, pushed it aside and saw the curled fingers of the woman below me, pushed her aside and found fox feet and the bones of a horse's tail. A little way off they struck again. They lifted out the remains, all of them like thieves in the dark. They had not covered me over and I watched as they brought the torch down to the skull and looked into its face. Seeing nothing but a decomposing grin, they laid it down again and left. What did they want? I called out when it was safe. But there was no reply. There never is. The Hermit I was with Sir Morian. I was there when he arrived with his company, Lancelot and Gawain, and I was there when they all returned. Their search for Morian's father frustrated by the perils of this country. I was with Morian when, at the end of it all, Sir Garriot, brother of Gawain, came with a white sheet with seven loaves and two full bottles of good clear wine. And I sat with them and ate and drank as if I were a knight, and none seemed to mind my company. And I found myself asking, these loaves, who baked them? Who planted the wheat? Who watched over the field, then bent down in the autumn sun and cut the stalks with a scythe? Who brought it back and ground it in a quiet mill? Who collected it up and sifted it? Who put their feet into the river and waded for water and sprinkled it to make the dough? Who went out laughing and looking for kindling to build the fire? Who built the oven and fanned the flames? Who placed the loaves on a long-handled tray and placed them deep into the fire? Who waited for them to cool? Who placed them in a sheet and gave them to Garriott? Who said goodbye as he rode through the forest? Who put a plait in his horse's mane? Who was watching from the trees? What unseen eyes glinted in his armour? Who sent the sun to broaden this clearing? Who wove the sheet warming in its rays? Who beat the silver and who grew the grapes? Who watches in the forest us having this feast? Who whispers this moment in villages distant? Who tells a pilgrim who's just passing through? Who hears it again and finds a good scribe? Who reads it alone on a dark, silent night? Who tells it again at two in the morning? Who conjures a question that will never be answered? Who had the answer and can never be asked? Describe. Yes, it was me who wrote the story down, but I wrote it only as I heard it told. Who told me? A stranger came looking for a scribe. He was filthy, not the type to be trusted, but he had with him some very fine cloth and a beautiful saddle and a beautiful hubbock. He had no sword and was unarmed. He said he would exchange these things if someone would write down his tale. At first I couldn't believe it. My family, like so many others, was suffering then. We didn't have enough to eat. Winter was long. 
Death was everywhere. The fog was heavy and full of shadows. I told the man that I would write his tale, and we sat for many nights in secret while he dictated it, and I wrote it down. It was about a black knight travelling down the sea road, looking to cross over and find his father. And in that time, my daughter died. And when the story was complete, he kept his promise and gave me what he had. But to my surprise, he also told me to keep the story and to find a good place for it. I stole away not long after and sold everything for a low price, lower than I should have. But I was desperate. In times of hardship, everyone is looking for something they can sell, something they could eat. Sometimes, if you bargain too hard they'll just kill you. What would my family do then? I don't know if the story is true or when it happened. I did not see the knight myself, and I don't know if he's as black as the story says. God help him if he wandered through these parts today. Someone said they had seen the stranger before, that he was a man of the forest. I have thought about him often over the years, but that was the first and last I ever heard of him besides once, when I heard a traveller telling a similar tale. He has never been seen again. It seems to be a strange time to be rewriting this myth slash legend in particular, given that it's such a foundational text for a lot of the Western canon and also how this country sort of seems to perceive itself. I was wondering how you found that. How I found adapting it. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I think I picked it for precisely that reason. I think we've all kind of grown up with... Um, a, a sort of sense of um, these sort of Arthurian, Arthurian legends. Um, I think we have a very specific idea about what they are. And I think they inform quite a lot of sort of massive commercial culture as well. I think like, you know, sort of multiplex sort of like big blockbuster films, they, they actually have quite a lot of things in common with these stories, if you know what I mean. Um, but I think for me, doing Morian in particular is... Um, really crucial now because I think there's basically two reasons for that um, and, and the first reason is because just as when I was writing The Red and Yellow Nothing I'm really fascinated by the idea of what that literal blackness means um, and then the other reason is because you know these stories were about um, providing sort of forms for behaviour right it was about imitation right it was about these knights would exemplify the kind of behaviours and values um, that people were supposed to kind of try to emulate themselves. And that's why I think these stories are quite strange a lot of the time. When we read them now, it's sometimes we're a bit like, what? Okay, there is the kind of narrative, but they kind of do weird things and they kind of go off on these tangents and you're kind of like, what was that necessary to the story? But obviously it's not just about the narrative, it's also about values. Um, and so when I was adapting it, that's something that I kept kind of returning to. I kept asking myself... Well, what does it mean to kind of transport this form or these forms and these ideas and these characters and these stories into a kind of sort of modern parlance? Like, what does it mean? What am I doing with these stories? Like, what am I satisfying or what am I like? What psychologically am I trying to kind of like pinpoint or or touch on? Um, And it was it was really great because I came across this book called Simple Forms by uh, Andre Yols. And there were kind of two quotations in it that really kind of solidified or at least allowed me to kind of grasp some of the things that I felt but couldn't necessarily articulate. Um, And the first one um, was about sort of legend because the book basically looks at lots of different forms like sayings, riddles, jokes, fairy tales and so on. Um, And obviously, yeah, but but, but they all kind of feed into each other. Um, And this first one was about legend and he kind of says... And it's it's kind of interesting to explore legend at a time in a place where it was read with a certain exclusiveness, where its importance cannot be discounted, and where it was one of the cardinal points on man's compass, perhaps, in fact, the only one by which people could orient themselves. I thought that was really interesting, this idea of orientation, and this idea of story as a way of navigating the world, because I still think story has that power, but in a slightly different way. And I also think it's often seen as something superfluous, right? Something that can be done without, right? Why do children need to, you know, learn about literature and stories and so on in schools when they could be becoming computer programmers, right? And there's a kind of, um, I think, quite reckless 
really reckless, in fact, uh, attitude towards narrative and what narrative really means. And I think that, that to me, just really summarised that really nicely. Um, and then there was another quotation that I really, that, that really, like, informed the way that I then wrote um, The Sea Road. And it was about um, Genesis, and it was about how Genesis begins. And it begins with, and God said, you know, let there be light and... Uh, um, and this is kind of described as this. What was it like before the world was lit up by them, before day and night were separated, before time was subdivided? And then an answer comes to the asker. This is an answer such that no further question is possible, such that in the moment it is given, the question is extinguished. Let us recall that the German verb fragen to ask, which is derived from the Germanic root frey, also means desire, study and demand. Man demands of the world and its phenomena that they make themselves known to him, and he receives an answer, that is to say, he receives their response. Their word comes to meet him. Um, and I just thought that was a fantastic way of kind of understanding that the kind of cadences of a lot of myth, you know what I mean? Like that kind of like, there's a, there's a simplicity there, but there's a kind of asking a question and then the world answering back. There's just something really stunningly beautiful about that. So I kind of used it like ad nauseum a little bit <laughs> in my poem <laughs> if you know what I mean, with the with the story of the hermit, because the hermit, I think, in, in, in that in that poem, what I'm trying to do with the hermit is kind of think about how myths come to us and what their point of origin was, because the point of origin can never really be known. But you can kind of ask and then you can kind of reflect on that. And then through that reflection, you kind of get these stories, right? You get these characters who are really kind of archetypes. And these archetypes are really like a sort of conglomerate of different things, right? A kind of consolidation of many different values and ideas and so on, like built over time. So to come back to your point, like your question really, of like what it was like to adapt these things. For me, it was like a real, like a real question of like, how do I bring this to the present? You know what I mean? How do I, how do I take these ideas, which are very important to me, and 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 interrogate them and rethink them and then represent them in a way that such that you know if, if there was a flood, that somebody might think actually I might want to save that story. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or they might even know the story in the first place. You know. And when it comes to that process of uh, ethical translation that goes along with adaptation, but which is vital for setting up. I guess an audience's readers' expectations as to what you're expected to sympathise with and what you're expected to be disgusted by and that kind of thing. These questions posed by the hermit in particular are ways of reframing that moral landscape precisely by pointing to the questions that are totally unasked by the original text. They're questions about essentially the invisible powers that keep the keep the universe moving along in that you know who planted the grain who bakes the bread who does the the work that allows you know allows the existence of society to function right um and what i'm curious about in that sort of sense of the invisibleness of power and the unspokenness of power is that Samorian never talks. He doesn't even appear on the scene. So why, what was the thinking behind that decision? So this adaptation is based on a, a, a very famous story, actually, um, called Inner Grove. And it's by a Japanese um, author called Ryonotsuki Akatagawa. I hope I got that right. <laughs> Rainotsuki Akatagawa, and it's a really, really famous story. It's a, it's kind of seen as this like, like, real modernist um, kind of experiment, and it was published in nineteen twenty two. And I, 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 for some reason, this story came to mind when I was writing about the Sea Road, and I decided to use that structure, and. The, in the original story, um, actually, everybody speaks. Everybody, all the characters involved do speak. Essentially, a body is found in the forest and um, the story is told through interviews with the High Commissioner, but also through confessions um, and also through kind of mediums as well. And there are like you know, t different titles so you kind of know what's, what's kind of going on. And all of the stories contradict each other or undermine each other in some way so that you, you don't know what the truth of the situation is. And yet the story is so compelling, right? And yet the story prevails. 
And that's what I wanted to do with this. Um, this is only one section of the entire legend, like, of the entire story. Like, it, there's all kinds of things that kind of happen. There are, like, two other roads that um, Gawain and Lancelot take, for example. Like, there's all the stuff that happened beforehand. There's all the stuff. They have a fight with the King of Ireland, you know what I mean? It's all, but this this psychological split in the story, to me, seemed um, like a point at which I could kind of start to use these much more kind of modern techniques to interrogate this idea of a black knight, this this kind of almost like a unicorn, right? This mystical thing who was who, even within this story is magical and strange and all the rest of it. And and Morian doesn't speak. Morian did speak when in, in earlier drafts Morian describes um travelling down the sea road, but I thought that that really undermined what I what what I was trying to do with this story, if you know what I mean. I thought having Morian's voice in there made it seem like I was confirming something, right? Whereas in the original story, um, nothing is confirmed, you know what I mean? And I thought, well, if we read that and Maureen is saying, and I did this, it doesn't quite work. It doesn't quite work. So I wanted Maureen, this kind of black knight, this um, anomaly in the landscape, to never have a voice. And also, the other thing I was trying to do with this is that um, as I was reading it and as I um, as I was writing it, I was like, this is a story about migration, right? Morian travels down the sea road um, and he gets to the shore and nobody will take him across the water. Like, no one will. They, they all run away. And in the original story, as he's um, sort of riding around and also trying to find somebody who will help him, he literally says to himself, this is pointless, this is futile because I'm a moor and nobody is going to help me. And he looks around and he's really, really hungry. Um, his head is spinning. Literally, this is this is what the text literally says. His head is spinning. Uh, he can't find any food. He can't find any shelter. And I was like, isn't that the hostile environment? <laughs> it's almost like if you were to write it not in me like medieval Holland, it would be like, that's a really on-the-nose metaphor. <laughs> oh, right, right. Exactly. Exactly. And I didn't want to be too on-the-nose about it, but I, I did think that that strand was there. So there is this question of, like, have you seen this knight? You know, and they're all, they're all answering this question. But then the way that they answer that question, I think, you know, there is that layer of, like, you know, the boatman is like, we've, we've made laws now. We're not going to take his kind, but we will take his father because his father does look like us. And I thought in the context of for example, the um, the current um, um, issues around, for example, the Windrush generation, which I think is only one element. I mean, I think the broader immigration problem is is a total shit show, obviously. But like with this particular element, there is this kind of like these people came here in one context, you know what I mean, like to the literal motherland as British citizens, and then fifty, sixty years later, they're being told actually the 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 ground has shifted the landscape has changed you know and I just thought that was so interesting this idea of origin because Morian is looking for his origins he's in a foreign land looking for his own self and psychologically the story to me is taking it's about that kind of unification and to kind of go back to this idea of what what these knights stood for. Um, Lancelot, Gawain, Garriott, all of the knights in the story have no problem with Morian's blackness. They don't, it's not, it's like par for the course. But all of the folk around them do. And I thought that was just so interesting because eventually um, Morian does get across the water, but only because he's with um, the, the two other knights and because they can vouch for him. And he's, it's literally described as the boatman is just kind of staring at Morian the entire time as they kind of, as they go across. And I was like, this is, it's, it's almost like, sometimes I read this story and I think to myself, what was, what was going on? You know, what was the political context here? Because it, it, it almost feels too uncanny and too kind of insightful and too kind of too much of a kind of reading into but then again on the other hand um the other thing that i was thinking about was that um poem um by shakespeare um he wrote an entire section about immigrants um, and one of the lines that really strikes me in it is about their poor luggage you know these people with their poor luggage moving around trying to find a place to settle and how shocking the attitude towards these people like was at the time and how shocking it still is now you know and so I just kind of wanted to bring a lot of that kind of rhetoric in and to not have Morian somehow come in and need to 
justify it or colour it, you know, to simply have these attitudes sort of floating. And precisely as you kind of animate in staging this sort of the hollow centre of, you know, Morian's lack of testimony, his lack of voice, it's precisely his blackness, which is always in contestation, which I think is so interesting because we think of like blackness either in a literal sense or in a racial sense as something like fixed and immutable and through time and like scientifically grounded but instead it's staged as something which is sort of like mythically in flux and always questionable exactly that is exactly what this is about it's like is he black or not was he a black knight or not did you see a black knight and yeah some of them say they do but then the robber says he didn't (laughs) You know, the robber, who I think is the most interesting character, is like, what do you mean he was black? What are you talking about? Tell me more about the thief, because he seems to be the one who almost grasps the nature of the parallations within this society that you set up most closely. Like, he's the one, even though in the original narrative you might have dismissed his testimony outright, he's the one saying, well, you know, you call me a thief, but, you know, look at the landowners, look at the laws and that kind of thing. So why did you choose him to be the person who I guess most undermines the idea of Maureen's blackness because I wanted there to be that moral ambiguity I wanted there to be that ambivalence um and but I didn't want it to be um a simple case of someone who could see the light somehow sort of being like and you're all wrong and I'm morally in the right I wanted it to be difficult um and also I wanted there to be the lingering question of what did you mean by that because the robber by saying he wasn't black doesn't affirm what he was and it's almost the reverse of what the poem does the poem says he's literally black but doesn't explain or or even seem to anticipate the reader wondering what that means and so there's a kind of I think historical gap there right we will never really know what that meant in that social context we can't ever know um and then with the robber it's the other way around he he doesn't see Morian as black but then what does he see him as and I just think leaving that question there to me is that that that's the whole that's the that's the cog around which the story turns to me because also what the robber does is he well he says he kills morian too you know (laughs) he says he murders him and buries him in the forest is that true do you know what i mean but also what i think the the robber kind of symbolizes is that shifting shifting blackness right shifting identification um, and I didn't want to do it in the in the in the in the words of like the boatman, for example, because I thought that was just a bit too kind of on the nose. I wanted to do it in the in the voice of somebody who already is outside of society and is and 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 is outside of conventional morality. Do you know what I mean? But not in a way that we can easily pinpoint. A lot of your work interrogates gender, which is one of the reasons I found it so interesting that all of the voices are male, either explicitly or or implicitly, and when the hermit was asking questions about who bakes the bread, etc., it was pointing to the absence of women in this poem, and also, you know, in the source text more generally, and there seemed to be this kind of alliance of absence between these othered people, you know, like all of the implicit women in this society, and indeed Samorian himself. Completely, yeah, um... That, that was sort of one of the kind of ideas behind it. It's like all of these very sort of gendered um, sort of actions that never are never answered, like questions that are never answered. And I do think it is really interesting to do a kind of sort of Marxist sort of analysis of like, who built the fairy tale castle, you know? Or like, you know, who was, who provided the feast you know what I mean like who did the labor <laughs> you know of getting this thing done and I think that's also why I have the scribe in there as well and the scribe talks about um his daughter dying and then there is the voice of the child who exists in a kind of half half living half dead sort of state um it's true the source text 
doesn't really have any women in it at all except Maureen's um, mother and then Guinevere who's kidnapped um, by the King of Ireland or something like this and you're like oh really like typical really typical tropes and actually I did have the voice of Maureen's mother in it at one point um, in an earlier draft but it didn't work it just didn't work as a I just it, it, for what I was doing in terms of balancing the the concept of migration and movement and seeking origins and then um, also this kind of like interrogation in, into what a myth is and how a myth is constructed um, and the ways in which you in what the ways in which these stories are kind of really a kind of a combination of many different things all at once seen from many sides um, it felt to me like I was shoehorning but that's okay because luckily there's a whole there are other sections of the story, you know, and I do intend to kind of continue writing about this. Um, and I think there, much more of the kind of gender bending um, that I did in The Red and Yellow Nothing will come through. Thank you so much. Next up, we have Simran, who is studying for a BA in classics at Oxford University. When they're not buried in Catullus, they are a Barbican Young Poet and a co-director of Coriander, a theatre collective whose work centres on the experiences of queer people of colour. Hello, Simran. Hello, thank you for having me. So what what myth have you chosen to rewrite? Um, I've chosen to expand on a story from the Ramayana. Um, and it's this tiny little version that's been lost in so many of the other versions of the tradition, or maybe pushed out, about the Hydra community and how they gain these kind of magic spiritual powers um, that then become really important to their kind of social role in contemporary Indian society. Great. In the mornings, I comb my hair with almond oil, rub it through knots on my scalp like my grandma did. From the window, you can see the courtyard, and I saw them, three dancers, Hydras with golden ankle bells that skipped from the street past my cousin, slipped tambourines from their saris and shook them. They'd come to bless him on the day of his wedding. Give money for their blessings or they'll curse you. Their lips were red as bimba fruit, I saw, vermilion red glimmering on their foreheads. They kicked up dust around the fake gems on their pumps and kept dancing and singing. But hai, blessings, but hai. Blessings on the wedding, Badhai. Sita told us that after she got home, after she was free from the prison island of Ravana, she was exiled again. They thought that one of the demon king's ten heads might have been held against hers. For a few years she lived with us on the edges of cities, found sisters twice exiled like her. We taught her how to dance and swapped our stories for hers. Sita said, when she and Rama were first exiled, when they left the city on that first day, they wrapped themselves in cotton travelling shawls and walked out to the woods at the edge of town. Sita said, she kept murmuring to herself and to Rama, Inshallah it will be well, Rama, Inshallah it will all be well. Whole families ran out to the woods with them, but we were in front of them, stamping and flicking the bells tied on our ankles, dancing in prayer as we ran after them. Our hair was tied back with jasmine garlands, each thread of hair like a strand of silk dropped in molten gold, molten gold in a world where gold is chestnut black, dark arm hair over skin like glossy chestnuts thick with colour. Our lips were red as bimba fruit, and the vermilion on our foreheads was glimmering. Sita said that at sunset they were climbing to a temple at the top of a peak, working their way up old steps cut into a hill. The temple was old and clambered over with monkeys, and offerings of bananas were scattered around the floor. She turned to look back from the steps of the hill temple and saw the trail of people, now gathering into bundles around campfires. They were tipping cumin into saucepans, roasting it in hot oil, sizzle for a few minutes, sliced onions, tip cans of baked beans on top. This isn't what exile is supposed to look like. Banishment from your home for 14 years shouldn't involve a friendly company of uncles and aunties currying baked beans and unfolding foil packets of flatbreads. Someone's grandma was climbing up the Sita, reached her, grabbed and squeezed the perfectly healthy skin on her hips and told her that she was too skinny not to be eating at least one brota, betta, you know. A little ghee is really so good for you. After they'd eaten, Rama stood up from the floor and said, Men and women of Ayodhya, go home. 
Go back to your home. And they left. The women and the men, Sita and Rama, black tea still on their tongues, sweetness and cardamom, ginger lingering round the air at the tops of their mouths. Mother Earth moved soil to cover all that remained after the men and the women had left, until all you could see was dust and then soon new shoots. What Sita told us was an ocean of stories, encompassing everything like the black waters that wrap the edges of the world. Peaks of new tales rose up and old ones merged and faded away in the swell. Sita told us about Ravana and the kidnapping, the waves that trapped her with him, and then she was free and travelled again with Rama, walked the rainforest wild hills and climbed the spine of the country that runs up to piles of Shiva's matted hair, his mountain. Snow and rocks cut through by snowmelt rivers, locks of hair cushioning Ganges fall from heaven. And finally, when it was safe, they came home. They stopped to pray on the edge of town, where there were new mounds of earth in the woods, mounds hedged with glimmering bimba fruit bushes. Sita went to one to grab and tear the green wood out of the soil, to make an altar and cover it over with the leafy, thriving branches. But as she pulled the first bundles of twigs out of the soil, the mounds started to dissolve. Roots in the earth twisted like worms, wiggled it off their backs, and the soil of the mounds was quicksand. I stood up once in a temple after an hour of prayer and my uncrossed legs were so dead that I fell headfirst into the stone head of a lion-shaped column. The old ladies at the back of the prayer hall snickered to each other, but imagine standing up for the first time after 14 years, years locked still, soaked in perfect loving prayer on Sita and Rama, so absorbed that Mother Earth covered you with plants and cool soil for protection from the burning sun after Rama sent the men and the women back home. We stood up slowly, all of us, the Hidras of Ayodhya, not one of us a man, not one of us a woman. As we stood up, clods of mud fell out of our saris, loops of roots and shoots untangled from the gold hoops in our nose and gold-coated bangles on our forearms. A guru mother pressed three fingers into each eye, turned her face to the ground and pressed those fingers to the soil in thanks to Mother Earth. And she stood up and we danced gem pendants dangling at our hairlines, bangles and foreheads gleaming with sweaty joy and gold. Sita shouted over our singing, said, take a blessing from us for your devotion. Even if they push you to the edges of their towns, they'll need you to bless them at their wedding. Give money for your blessings or you'll curse them. But hi, you'll sing, but hi, blessings, blessings on your wedding. We danced forwards, ground the balls of our feet through sparkling old pumps into the dry earth, slipped a tambourine out of our saris and skipped past the young man in the courtyard. Our lips were red as bimba fruit and the vermilion on our foreheads was glimmering. Badhai, we sang, Badhai. Blessings on your wedding, Badhai. Tell me a little more about the Ramayana and this particular story's role in it. Mm. So the Ramayana actually has hundreds and thousands of different versions, um, which were standardised in various different ways. Um, and so often they've been like rewritten, and that's the kind of main version of the story that everybody will know, um, and the main translations. Uh, but the thing is that actually there have always been um, all these different versions and different stories, um, often ones that have like far more feminist readings of Sita's role in it, or ones that will say like centre people of lower castes, because really the Ramayana is a story about like a very fair-skinned, high-caste man and his wife who does everything that he tells her to. Um, in many ways, it's like the definitional patriarchal Brahminical Hindu story. Um, but because there are all these other versions, um, lots of other people have gone to these other versions and kind of mind them 
and try to find little stories and little gems that have been cut out in the kind of in the tradition of um, consolidating it. And um, this is a very small story that I just picked up from uh, reading about um, different hijras and hijra activists' um, books and stuff. And they often come back to the story because it shows the antiquity and the kind of like spiritual power and importance of their community that's so badly marginalised. So actually it's a story that very few people know exists in the tradition of the Ramayana, but it's so, so important to that community. And the idea is that this is how they've gained their sort of spiritual force or magical powers? Mm. Or? Yeah, exactly. Because um, So hijras are forced right onto the margins of contemporary Indian society. And the main interaction between the hijra community and the rest of Indian society, or South Asian society, um, is at weddings and um, when you have a child. And the hijra, and the, so members of the community will come to your house or the wedding and they'll dance and perform. And you're, you have to give them um, a fee. Um, so you don't invite them, but they come anyway. And um, their performance is a blessing. I mean, if you don't barter with them and give them um, a fee for their blessing and their performance, uh, they have the power to curse you, is what's widely believed. Um, or at least traditional. I found it very interesting, your use of the image of a fake gem mm. on, their, on their clothing. It's, I was trying to... This is a beautiful story, right? And it's very, like, celebratory and happy. The thing is that hijras are one of the most marginalised communities across South Asia nowadays. Um, there are some amazing activists like uh, Lakshmi Tripathi, who is absolutely fantastic, and there's, there was also um, doing all this really good work. But the problem is that um, most of Indian society deprives the hijra community of access to pretty much like every resource that you could need, and there's so much, there's a lot of poverty and violence. Um, so I was just trying to kind of connect with this way that although um, there is this like beautiful and rich tradition, the contemporary reality is often one of kind of, well, society blocking access to anything really and in the context of that it is um noteworthy i guess that rather than the heroes being marginalized mm. it's um it's the men and the women who are told to go home and there is something yeah. there's something kind of very compelling about that that tale of persistence and survival really mm. yeah absolutely i think it's nice to show queer people being spiritual or religious and to show queer people like gaining power from that um, just because for all kinds of reasons that's something we don't see very often and like so many of us as queer people are forced to like kick back against the traditions that are so horrible to us um, but I, so I just wanted to celebrate when a case of queer people finding their own strength in spirituality in their own way because um, I think that's a wonderful thing and this is, of course, a very personal retelling as well. You haven't just transposed an ancient story onto a sort of not necessarily modern context, but modern framework of understanding. It's also been enriched with a lot of interactions with grandmas and aunties and uncles and people are combing one another's hair and being quite affectionate with one another in a way that seems quite joyful. Yeah, I guess part of it is that it's just such an important or like joyful part of my life my family life is has always been a main source of like happiness and humor and all that kind of stuff especially around food in this like almost stereotypical south asian way like everything's about food food is about love like i am um, when i was going to uni this term i came downstairs and somebody had put a pile of like water bottles and like uht milk and cereal bars and a bit of fruit uh, in a little pile by the door and i kind of looked at it and got a bit teary because i was like oh you know like that's love <laughs> right there. Yeah. Um, and I think for me, kind of my family and my spirituality and my queerness um, all weave into each other. So it felt really natural to kind of like just like celebrate and be happy about all the like wonderful and silly and humorous stuff in the like South Asian British community um, alongside the rest of it. Because for me, that the kind of queerness and the quit, because for me so often, you know, queerness is something that pushes you away from your family. And it's really nice to celebrate when it doesn't and even perhaps create a fantasy where it does the opposite um, all the time, which is, which is nice. I'm interested by the idea of 
exile in the context of myth, because particularly in epics of such enormous scale and scope, you know, like the Ramayana, exile is actually a process through which many heroes go in order to fulfil their heroic destiny and things like that. So I'm really intrigued by the kind of resonance between that sort of exile and the exile that you express, you know, is experienced by the hijras, not just in the myth, in the traditional myth, but, you know, in contemporary society. There is something heroic there, almost. I think the tie between Sita and hijras as exiles um, has so much to it. Because there's also this um, like detail that I allude to, that, hijra, that Sita gets exiled... Um, twice. She gets back home and she's safe and everything is fine and happy. But um, people are too suspicious that um, basically Ravana raped her when she was on his island. Um, and of course, in this like incredibly patriarchal, Brahminical model, that makes her impure. And so she has to be cast out. And she goes through this fire ceremony where um, she is basically put on a funeral pyre. And the fact that she survives the funeral pyre means that she's allowed to stay in um it's a um test of chastity right um but even though she passes this test um she's still exiled because people don't trust her or they don't trust the test and like i've sometimes wondered if that's kind of saying that like people are always going as in no matter what you do <laughs> that the kind of standards of purity and chastity are compl- uh, will never be met, right? As in, like, even though it has these mechanisms for deciding who is good enough, um, it can just kick you out of it whenever it wants to anyway. Um, and um, so it's that second exile that creates the Ramayana, because she then goes back to the cottage in the hills where she meets the sage Valmiki, who then writes down the story. Um, so in a sense, the whole creation of the hero narrative in the Ramayana, the whole creation of Rama as a hero comes through Sita's mouth. It's kind of like at the end of Hamilton when, um, or I guess perhaps I shouldn't spoil it. But, um, spoiler alert. <laughs> yes, big spoiler alert for Hamilton. Um, but right at the end of Hamilton when you realise that everything has come through um, Eliza, right, Hamilton's wife. Um, it is Eliza who's his wife, right? Hopefully, fingers crossed. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, oh, it's, it's so good. But... Um, it's the fact that really she's the one who's had control over this whole story, this whole narrative. Wondering who the us is in this poem, because it almost seems like you're talking directly to the reader or the listener and kind of inviting them into this community of hijras. But I suppose in the case of this poem, I'm trying to set up a we as both like this tradition... Um, this like beautiful mythical tradition that has been lost and trying to kind of give it its own space um, and kind of speak more from the position of that tradition and a kind of merging of it with my own tradition and kind of what is me. Um, so I guess it's really a kind of half-half situation where like I'm both trying to write me um, and trying to platform someone else's story Um and I guess also use the way that myth has always been this kind of um, mixing of traditions. So people have always retold myths in their own ways and in their own traditions, especially the Ramayana has always been retold in its own way by people in different social or cultural groups. Um, and I feel that kind of gave me this space to be like, I have every right to have my own version of the Ramayana as much as um, any other group has. Um, I have just as much right to rewrite it because it has always been rewritten. Thank you so much. Last up, we have Rian Edwards, who is a multi-award winning poet and musician. Her first collection, Clueless Dogs, won the Wales Book of the Year Award in 2013 and was shortlisted for the Forward Prize for Best First Collection. Hello, Rian. Hello, Eleanor. So what have you chosen to retell for us? The myth fairy story that I've chosen is Blodoywys, which is from the third book of the Mabinogi, um, the ancient book of Welsh fairy tales. Blodoywys. 
I am flower face, blood oi with, conjured not born. I am alchemized from earth, not the humdrum of bone. My DNA is flora, I am chimera, a mosaic of petals, a Molotov cocktail of meadowsweet, broom, oak blossom. I bleed syrup and sap. My meadowsweet meadwort, bridewort grows in damp. I am the strewing herb to scent your floors. I almond your stewed fruit. I am tea for your gout and fever, aspirin for your acid gut. I am the gorse flowers of broom. I thrive in parched ground. I am dyer's broom jaundicing your wool. I am salad, raw and pickled. I poison your pregnancy. I am the hanging catkin of oak, a ticking time bomb of pollen. I am the primeval catalogue bride, Gwydion and Math's balmy concoction, a pig-brained wedding gift, cure for the cursed, Llaithlau Gafes, blighted by his own mother to never be loved by a human woman. I embroider the passage of this invented life, this preternatural marriage. I thread petals into stitches, caging them within the warp and weft of this whiffery, when my husband moves inside me, I pestle and mortar myself, decant the potpourri of me into the fissures of this marital chamber. I blow myself back to the cloaking shade of the oak, the soft scurry of insects and birds inside me. I replant myself in the meadow, sink back into the kutch of the docile soil. I would uproot the stones of this castle if I could, reclaim my ceiling and the untamed roof of the fickle Welsh sky while it hoofs down its ocean upon me. In the absence of my husband, another crosses my threshold. Gronu Pebir, Lord of Penllyn, two-lipped in stag's blood, with bluebells for eyes. He makes the pollen of me drift back home to itself. I come to blossom as compound of woman and flower, I chide my fancy for the blown dandelion clock of my brain until Grono, my lord, confesses his love as like-minded. We cling like vines to each other, tarry three nights in my bed where we parley conspire, hatch a life of perennial intertwine. On my husband's return I perfume his mind, scratch him for the spell of his death, divine how his hermetic armour may be chinked, his bulletproof skin may be pierced. He confides he can only be killed at dusk by a riverbank, swaddled in a net, balancing one foot on a bath, the other on a goat, struck by a spear forged on a year's worth of Sundays. After fifty-two Sabbaths, our plot is entire. My velvet hour river stage set, my trapped husband treads air between buck and tub. Grano hurls the spear, mutating my clay into a sea eagle, his flight out of divorce. Gwydion, sorcerer, poet, godfather, hunts down my bird husband, englins him down from the oak branch, harks him back to manhood, nurses him to avenge and to slaughter. Gwydion, my inventor, my midwife, curses my cuckoldry, hexes my shapeshift into the nemesis of birds. I am now nocturnal for disgrace, to be mobbed and molested by birdkind who once revered me for my nectar propagated by nature, doctored my, by man, given sinew, persona, to be abhorred by the wild. I am now the white mask, squashed heart face of a barn owl. I am elderberry eyes, fingers arthritic with talons. I am the, I am the tattered cloak of wheat, the moth's furry wingbeat. I am hunter, butcher, tethered to the night like a haunting. I am witchbird, caterwaul, screech owl, banshee scream, piccolo hoot, a cry of mourning. I am the retort of to wit to my dead lover's silence. And what are feathers anyway but unbreakable flowers? Thank you, that was beautifully read. I'm enchanted. So why did you choose to speak in the voice of Bladoeth? Um, so I previously... Um, rewritten another of the fairy tales from the Mabinogi, um, The Birds of Rhiannon. Um, not only was she my namesake, um, but also I was writing a lot of um, bird poems at the time. I became obsessed with birds, a real anorak about birds. And Blodoywith intrigued me because she's always... She's always made the villain, when in fact she was created for a man. She was created out of flowers 
And she had the audacity to think for herself and to not love the man she was designed for, but have the audacity to love her true love, you know. And often she is, she's made the traitor because she... Um, some pe- so Matthew Francis, I think, in, in his retelling of Blood Are You With, makes her the real villain in plotting her husband's death. Whereas in Charlotte Guest's version, the much earlier version, she makes it much more a plot between the two of them, Grono the lover and Blood Are You With. So I've also found that it's never really told from her point of view. So I really wanted to address that and, and remedy it, I suppose. I'm struck by the image of uh, Granu becoming a flower-like, that ability to, you know, in the act of falling in love, recognise the stuff you're made of in the other person. Yeah. And there is something about that image which blurs the lines between this sort of romanticised pastoral scene and the kind of violence of the thing that they plot together. You don't make a firm distinction between flowers, you know, like flowers, nice, pretty things, and the, like, violence of the landscape. Mm-hmm. Um, it was interesting because that was, that was probably the toughest part to address, was the falling in love. And how do, you, how do you write it without it turning into a Hallmark card? You know, that is always the stuff I tend to remain firmly away from. And so I, I it's somehow meeting... Gronu had to somehow resonate and and trigger her floral self, her real self, her actual DNA. There's something more intrinsic. So the fact he comes in from hunting and he's covered in stag's blood, which is a hideous scene, how you can fall in love with a man at first sight covered in blood. So it had to be romanticised, but not, but not too much. And again, it was that... I was always, I always felt I had to tap into nature. That was what she always wanted to return to. So somehow now she's in this new machination of herself as a woman. Um, somehow he brings nature back to herself. And in returning to nature, she also makes herself illegible by the standards of morality that you point out usually condemn her, right? Mm-hmm. That usually make her villainous. And by... <laughs> by retelling her as a fundamentally natural thing, as a fundamentally aligned with, like, the chaos of the natural world, it's not necessarily redeeming her entirely. She doesn't become this aspirational figure, but she is full of the contradictions of the flowers she's drawn from, right? You point out that they're also full of poison. Yeah. Because that's the thing, I didn't want to make her a wishy-washy character, which is... I think she's, she's very much overlooked in the telling, and... And also I wanted to empower her. Um, I think I think I resonated a bit with Blodworth because maybe due to the breakdown of my own marriage and I didn't want her just to take this, um, this spell that Gwydion puts upon her to be mobbed and molested by the other birds, that she's a scarlet lady who's forever shaded by night. So when it came to the actual, the end, I wanted her to be almost empowered and actually, you know, what are feathers anyway but unbreakable flowers? Actually, she's returned more to what she always wanted to be anyway. She got returned to nature. Because in the, I mean, I guess there's no original, but in this many retellings, there is this sense of irony because, you know, nature out of which she's created is the thing that, you know, rejects her and mobs her. And she can't, obviously, is rejected from the human world as well by being deprived of her voice. It's like she's, you know, she's doubly exiled by virtue of the transformation and that in your poem becomes almost a moment of redemption because she is kind of free from this marriage yeah exactly and it's the same sorcerer who basically combined these three flowers to make this woman who instead of killing her decides that nature will abhor her and it's like well wait a minute you were the one who doctored her you were the one who screwed with her dna and she just didn't obey the plan that you had for her she wasn't this doting wife um, so there's a quote I have actually got at the start of the poem from the Owl Service, um, Alan Garner, which is also retelling the Blodoy with tale. When I took the powers of the oak and the broom and the meadowsweet and made them woman, that was a great wrong to give those powers a thinking mind. Yeah, that, that does resonate with this idea in you find in a lot of literature and mythology that womanness is inherently something 
chaotic and that must be controlled. And when it has an intellect, it's something doubly sinister because that chaos can kind of have like an intentionality of what particularly it wants to hurt. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm interested that the husband also briefly gets ten- turned into a bird, but yeah. because of the internal logic of how justice and morality happens within these tales he can't remain a bird because that would be to remain punished exactly Exactly. and it's quite i mean it's a section i left out because with the mabinogi the stories are so convoluted there's so much detail everything happens for like a hundred years in a day and um gwydion sorts out uh um gosh Llelau Gafez. I do, I always fall over his name, Llelau Gafez. Um, because he finds that this sow is chomping on something that's full of maggots. And he looks up at the tree and he sees the eagle and he recognises that this must be Llelau Gafez. And he englins him. So an englin is a very special form of um, Welsh verse. And so Gwydion is is infamous and famous in, in the Mabinogi for being the sorcerer and this poet. And and so, yes, he, he remains this kind of just it only specifies an eagle. But I wanted to find out what kind of species of eagle he would most likely have been in Wales. So I went with a sea eagle. So, yeah, birds, they, they feature so heavily in the Mabinogi. And I suppose that's why I've been massively attracted to it. Oh, there was another bit, actually, which I left out of the section. So Grano Pebir, he has his men and Llechlau Gafez is coming towards him and he asks his men, if any of them will kind of defend his honour, none of them will. So he asks, he asked Leithlau Gafez if he could, if he can have a shield, a stone shield, but the spear goes through the stone and pierces him and kills him. And apparently the stone is still, you can still find it up in North Wales, this stone with this huge hole in, you know. I'm intrigued by how much contempt there is in the poem for the human world yeah. you call it the humdrum of bone yeah is that something you you intended or you... <laughs> yes because again to empower her really and because she is this magical being i mean she is this she is this frankenstein monster ostensibly um and originally i was going to pull on the the myth well not the myth but the story of lilith in the old testament who was the original eve and she was made from soil um but she wasn't obedient to adam so she was she was gotten rid of, and God basically had to make a woman from the bone of Adam in order to make her obedient. That was the belief. So it was bringing in that that you know she was never going to be obedient. She wasn't born from the humdrum of bone. She was always going to be wild. Rian, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you, Anna. That's it for this week on Bedtime Stories for the End of the World. You can catch up on all our episodes, find out more about our writers and much more besides on our website, endoftheworldpodcast.com. To keep up with all our work, you can follow at goodbyeworldpod on Twitter. You can bother me personally at Eleanor K. Penny. This project is kindly supported by the Arts Council England and the infinite patience of the good folks at Spread the Word. It is produced by Tom McAndrew and from all of us, sweet dreams and thanks for listening.